Hello, and thank you again for joining us online for worship. We're closing our series through the parables of Jesus, and I hope that as we look back on this series, that we would remember what it means for us to live as citizens in the kingdom of God, that we would remember what it means to, to love our neighbors as we have loved ourselves. And finally, that we would remember what it means to treasure Jesus Christ and his gospel above all else. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our final parable for this series. It's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. The word of the Lord. This passage is about forgiveness and gratitude. Forgiveness and gratitude. And through it, Jesus is asking us whether we truly understand what it means for our sins to be forgiven. Not just from an intellectual standpoint, but from an experiential one. Have we experienced the sin-breaking liberating power of the gospel in our lives? Have we been moved to tears because Jesus Christ has taken our shame away? Because Jesus Christ has paid a debt for us that we could never repay? And if so, if we have experienced this gospel of wondrous grace, how do you and I show gratitude to our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we demonstrate our love our affection, and our devotion to him. As we work our way through this text, I'd like to outline this message in the following manner. First, we're gonna look at the scandal. Second, the parable. 
and finally the answer. And so we're just going to follow the natural flow of the text. It begins with the scandal, then the parable, and finally the answer that Jesus offers. Earlier in Luke chapter 7, we're told that Jesus' fame had been spreading all throughout Capernaum. He has been teaching, he's been performing miracles, and the crowds have been gathering around him. The crowds regard him not only as a great teacher, but now as a prophet. Jesus' fame is spreading. And because of this, a Pharisee named Simon wants to, to, to meet him, to get to know more about him, to ask him questions and see who this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth really is. And so he invites him over for dinner. He invites him over for dinner. Now this dinner was not this private one-on-one meal between Simon and Jesus. Instead, it was more like a banquet. It likely took place outdoors in a courtyard with special guests who were invited, probably other Jewish leaders in the synagogue, perhaps some family members and some friends. And according to the Jewish culture of of hospitality, uh, non-invited guests could actually come. So if they heard about this meal, if they heard about this gathering, they could come. Now, they wouldn't get a seat at the table. They wouldn't be able to dine with Jesus and the special guests, but they could remain on the outside of the courtyard and they could listen in to the conversations. They could see what was going on. This is what happens. And this is what is happening between Simon and Jesus. And so when a certain woman, a woman of the city, known as a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was going to be at Simon the Pharisee's house, she took an alabaster, uh, uh, an alabaster flask of ointment and she went as an uninvited guest. She was kind of a, a party crasher in this sense. And this is where the scandal begins. This woman is most likely a prostitute. She is a street walker. And the thing is, she is known and labeled as one. She doesn't do this in secrecy. This woman is not living a double life or a dual life. She is known in the town, in the community as that woman. She is that woman, that woman you do not want your daughters to become. She is that woman that you do not want your husband to be around. She is that woman that, uh, that you and the other women of the town gossip about. Have you ever been that person? Have you ever been that person labeled as a sinner, labeled as an outcast, known as a, as a delinquent? I experienced this when I was in junior high. I'm not gonna get into all of the details, but in eighth grade, I got, I got caught with drugs at school on campus. Um, some of my friends uh, ratted me out. Uh, at the time, I was a little upset, but looking back, I'm glad they did. I'm definitely glad that they did. I was suspended from school. Um, I was kicked off the, uh, the junior high wrestling team. Uh, I got into a world of trouble with my parents and I was labeled as the bad kid. I was labeled as the bad kid at my school. Several weeks later, uh, after I had um, returned to school, I, mean, I, only, I was only suspended for about a week or so. Um, and a couple weeks after that, um, one of my friends asked me to, to hang out over at his house over the weekend. And uh, I had done my time with my parents. I had paid the, the hefty price of, for my sins and delinquency. And, um, and so my parents said, okay, 
You know, okay, you can hang out uh, with, with your friends on the weekend. And then when my friend asked his mom, oh, can, can Michael come over? Uh, can Michael Lee come over? Uh, she said, no. She said, no. And she said, I don't want you hanging out with that boy. And now my friend uh, has pretty low EQ or had, not now, uh, had pretty low EQ. And so he had no filter. He just told me exactly what his mom said. My mom doesn't want me hanging out with you. And that was the first time I experienced communal shame, communal shame at my school. I realized that uh, the parents of my classmates and friends, uh, that they were talking about me and not in flattering ways. I realized that, that our teachers and the administration uh, were talking about me. I had my homeroom professor, uh, uh, homeroom teacher, and, and he was exhorting the students not to, get, not to do drugs, don't do drugs. And, and everyone knew that he was triggered and he was saying those things because of me. I knew that my classmates had new uh, and changed opinions about who I was. And all of this made me very self-conscious, very self-conscious. I had become that kid, that student at school. Brothers and sisters, if the people at our church, if they knew the worst about you, and if they thought the worst of you, would you still come to our church? If they knew all the details, all the sordid, dark details of your past and the things that you have tried to hide, the things that you have tried to run away from, if the people at our church knew all of the present sins and the present darkness in your life, and if our church members judged you for it, and if our church members in our community labeled you as that kind of person, would you still show up? Would you come to church? Would you still be at your community group? Odds are you wouldn't. Odds are you wouldn't. We wouldn't be able to handle the shame. We wouldn't be able to handle that kind of, kind of, kind of scorn and that kind of treatment. Odds are you'd leave and you'd look for a new church. You'd look for a place where you could have a fresh start and rewrite your persona, where you could recreate your image. But friends, this woman's worst sins were known. This woman's worst sins were known to the whole town. She was that woman. And yet she entered into the home of a Pharisee, a man whose reputation is the complete opposite of hers. Simon was highly regarded by the community. He was considered a godly, a righteous man who kept the law of God to, down to its very jot and tittle. He was considered righteous. She was considered unrighteous. This woman knew what everyone would think. The moment that she, that she found herself in that courtyard, she knew that people would wonder, what is she doing here? What is she doing here? Doesn't she know that she doesn't belong here? But she doesn't care. She doesn't care. She needs to go to Jesus. Now, we don't know how, and we don't know when, but this passage suggests that she has met Jesus before or she has heard Jesus before. Perhaps uh, she met Jesus just like Jesus met the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well. 
And perhaps she had a life-changing personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Or maybe she heard Jesus preach the gospel of the kingdom of God at a synagogue or out in the open like he often did. And it was the preaching and the promises and the message of Jesus that penetrated her heart and changed her life. But either way, she has met or heard Jesus before. She has been touched by the grace and forgiveness that only Jesus Christ afforded her. She knows that this man has given her something that no man has ever given her, has ever offered her, and it's the forgiveness of sins. And she has come to this banquet to show her gratitude. She has come to this banquet to love Jesus back because he first loved her. And so as Jesus was reclining at the table, laying down on his side, because that's how how they ate back in Jesus' day, this woman came up behind him and did an unspeakable thing, a scandalous thing. She brought an alabaster flask filled with precious oil to anoint him as an act of love and gratitude. And so she's she's there standing over Jesus' feet. This was probably the most valuable thing in her possession. But before she can anoint him, she begins to weep. She begins to weep. And her tears begin begin to flow down her face and onto Jesus' feet, drop by drop. She remembers all of her sin. She remembers all of the shame that she had endured. And then she remembers how Jesus Christ had forgiven her, how Jesus Christ had loved her, how Jesus Christ had lifted her up out of the pit and changed her life. And so she's down on her knees and she has cried so much. She's cried so much that she lets down her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She begins to wash his feet with her tears and uses her hair as a towel. This too is scandalous, absolutely scandalous. And everyone around was surely gasping in shock. But once again, she doesn't care. She's unashamed of her love towards Jesus. Her only concern is Jesus. All she wants to do is thank him and adore him. And she begins to kiss his feet. She kisses his feet over and over again. And then she opens that alabaster flask of oil and she anoints his feet with that oil. It's such a beautiful and powerful picture of humility, of devotion, and love. People would have considered that wasteful to use such a precious oil on not a person's head, not upon Jesus' body, but his feet. But to her, it wasn't wasteful. It was worship. It wasn't wasteful. It was worship. And all the while, Simon the Pharisee, he sees everything. He sees this entire display and he is filled with contempt. He's not only judging the woman, he's judging Jesus. He judges Jesus for allowing that woman, that sinful woman to touch him 
and perform those acts of love and devotion towards him. And he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him for she is a sinner. We all know exactly what Simon was thinking. No real prophet would allow that kind of behavior. No truly godly man would allow uh, such a woman, such a sinful, filthy, unreputable woman to touch him. He wouldn't be in association with her at all. And as Jesus so often does in the Gospels, he knows what Simon is thinking. He knows what's in his heart. He hears his heart and he responds with a simple parable. Jesus looks at Simon and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and that is two years' salary. Okay, so a denarius is one day's wage, and so 500 is roughly equivalent to two years' salary. And the other 50, which is about two months' salary. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? The answer is obvious. The answer is obvious, and Simon answers correctly. The one who was forgiven two years' salary would obviously love the money lender more. He would be more grateful. But like all parables, Jesus' point is not merely to teach an object lesson. He isn't saying that, that Simon is like the smaller debtor and then this, this, this prostitute, this woman, is like the greater debtor and uh, making that kind of comparison. No, Jesus is exposing Simon's heart. You see, Simon's problem is that he doesn't see his own sin. He doesn't see himself as a debtor. It's easy for him to look at that woman and say, of course, she is like that woman who owed 500 denarius. Of course, she is in the hole. Of course, she is far and distant from God. But he didn't see his own sin. He didn't see his own need for forgiveness and grace. All Simon sees is the sinfulness of others. All he does is judge others with contempt. One commentator wrote, Simon couldn't see what this woman had become because all he could see was what she once was. That's what, what, he, that's what he saw when he saw this prostitute. What she once was. The life that she used to live. Friends, who have you, who have we labeled with such contempt? Who have you condemned to the point where you are no longer able to see them as people made in the image of God? Where you can no longer um, see them as people who have been forgiven and restored by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who are the people in your life that you see solely now as a villain, as an opponent, as a threat? Church, we need to be very cautious of our culture today. Uh, our young people, uh, I love the phrases that they use. Uh, they, they, um, yeah, our culture right now is, is a call-out culture and then a cancel culture. If you don't know what that means, call-out just means like we love, to, we love to identify other people's sins, other people's shortcomings, other people's failures and problems. And then uh, what it means by cancel culture, that just means like you're dead to me. 
You are a non-person. Whatever you say, whatever you do doesn't count. I have canceled you out of my life, out of my thoughts, out of my heart. You are a non-person. And that is what our culture is doing over and over again through social media, online, in our relationships. We need to be very careful of this. Too many of us are not listening well. We are not loving well. And instead, we're just following this culture that loves to label, that loves to judge. And out of this sinfulness, we are blinding ourselves. We are blinding ourselves of our own shortcomings. We're blinding ourselves of our own unrighteousness. We cannot see our own sin because we are so fixated on the sins and the failures and the problems of others or the problems in our society. How many of us have spent more time in the last days, weeks, and months identifying the problems of our culture, the problems of our city and our country than really looking at our own problems? at our own sins, at our own idols, at our own unrighteousness. Jesus then asked Simon to look at the woman. Here we have the final point of the message, the answer. Jesus brings all of this together and he makes a scathing comparison between the two, between Simon and this former prostitute. Simon was supposed to be the host. He was supposed to give Jesus water for his feet. If he was a wealthy man, he would have had a servant come and wash Jesus' feet. Simon, as the host, was supposed to greet Jesus with a holy kiss, with an embrace as a friend and as a brother. Simon was supposed to anoint Jesus' head with oil as a sign of honor and a symbol of friendship. But Simon has done no such things. Instead, the woman has done all these things and she has shown herself to be the true host towards Jesus. She has been the true friend towards Jesus who has loved him and accepted him. She is the one. And then we reach the climactic verse of this passage. The verse that unlocks the meaning of this parable and it's found in verse 47. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't just cover over or make small of her life of prostitution, her life of street walking, her life where she has caused so much adultery, so much unrighteousness and evil in her community. Jesus doesn't make light of these sins. He says her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What is Jesus saying? Because it's very important that we understand the order of what Jesus is saying. We have two options as we read this verse. Either Jesus is saying we are forgiven because we love much. Okay, that's one option. And when you read the first half of verse seven, uh, 47, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying that, that we are forgiven much because we love much. Or the second option is we love because we are forgiven. We love much because we are forgiven much. And this is why the parable and the context of, of this whole scene is so important. 
uh, because we see clearly what Jesus is saying. He is telling us that we love much because we have been forgiven much. Okay. That love and gratitude are the result of forgiveness, not the cause of it. Okay. Not the cause of it. This woman is not forgiven because she cried on Jesus' feet. She is not forgiven because she wiped his feet with her hair. She is not forgiven because she brought the most costly and precious item in her house and, 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 and wasted it and spent it on Jesus Christ. That is not why she is forgiven. That is not why she is accepted. No, she does all of those things because forgiveness, grace, the love of Jesus came first. And to reinforce this point, Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The Greek verb there is in the perfect tense, which indicates a prior forgiveness. That's what the perfect tense does. It's a past action that has been completed with ongoing significance. Her sins have been forgiven. She has placed her trust in Jesus. And because of this, she has peace with God. Brothers and sisters, which of these two characters reflect your life today? Which of these two characters reflect your life today? Are you like the Pharisee who makes little of his sin and much of himself? Who is quick to judge who is filled with his own sense of righteousness, who considers himself judge over Jesus? Or are you like the woman who sees her sin, who acknowledges her sin and trusts in Jesus alone to take her sin away? Now we may all think, man, that's an easy one. I've grown up in church and of course I don't wanna be like the Pharisee and I'm not like the Pharisee and I know I'm not perfect and I confess my sins every day, every week. I know I'm, a, I'm not a sinner or I know I am a sinner, right? I am a sinner. But before we walk away from this text, before we walk away so flippantly and casually from this parable, please know that Jesus has actually given you and I a very clear test for our hearts. We can say we're like that woman. We can say we acknowledge our sin, but Jesus tests our hearts in this passage because he asks us, how much then do you love me? How much do you love me? How costly is your worship and gratitude towards me? Because if you and I truly see the depth of our sin, because if you and I truly understand the immense debt, the infinite debt that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross for us, then we will love him. We will love him with a great affection. We will love him with hearts filled with gratitude. We will never be ashamed of him. We will be obsessed with adoring our savior, Jesus Christ. We will lavish him with all that we have, with all that we are. We will gladly pour that out upon the feet of Jesus Christ. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And so that is the question. 
It's not simply, hey, are you a sinner? Do you confess your sins? It's actually, do you love me? Do you love me like this woman loves me? Will you worship me like this woman has worshiped me? And I think if we wrestle with that question, our hearts will be conflicted. We will feel exposed. Because we will have to think, man, when is the last time? When is the last time I just fell to my feet and worshiped Jesus? When is the last time I truly humbled myself before the Lord and just thanked him? Thanked him for his wondrous, undeserved, but sufficient grace for me. When is the last time I really loved and adored Jesus with all that I am and all that I have? Friends, this is what the gospel does to us. This is what the gospel does to us. It makes us the most humble, repentant, and loving people on the face of the earth. This is really what the gospel does. We should be the most grateful, non-judgmental, hospitable, and unashamed people in our communities because we have been changed by the love of Jesus. Because you and I have had our sins, though they are as scarlet, they have been washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus. And church, this is what our world needs today. Our world needs to see and experience gospel-changed people. Friends, I'm all for systemic change. I'm all for justice in our society. I have celebrated in recent days and weeks the tearing down of racist monuments and Confederate symbols throughout the South. It is powerful to see white, brown, yellow, and black communities coming together in solidarity, wanting to listen to one another, wanting to support one another, wanting to um, yeah, work together for justice and flourishing in our country. But know this, know this, systems can't change hearts. Systems can't change hearts. Only the gospel can Political parties, presidents, governors, law enforcement officers, they are not the hope of the world. The church of Jesus Christ is. And I'm praying that we here at All Nations would deeply understand that, that only the gospel can change our hearts, that only the gospel can change our lives, and that we are called to be a city on a hill, a community that is not only set apart, okay, not only set apart from the world, but that we stand in the world as a beacon of hope, as a beacon of light to a dark and divided world. Church, may we be radically humble. Humble in a time that is filled with so much self-righteousness 
and pride. May we be beautifully loving towards others, loving towards our enemies, loving towards those who would would scorn us and shame us. Would we be grateful? Would our hearts be filled with gratitude towards Jesus Christ who has loved us and forgiven us by his blood on the cross? And finally, would we also be forgiving people? Because just as Jesus Christ has forgiven us, despite how great and many our sins are, we are now called to forgive others. As we experience pain, as you and I might experience injustice, as we might be judged, as we might be despised by this culture or in our communities, we are called to be forgiving people because the gospel is at work in us. Friends, what's beautiful about this parable is that it's a parable in the midst of a real life story. And when you and I, if we trust in Jesus Christ, when we get to heaven, we're gonna see this woman. We don't know her name. We don't have her. Luke doesn't give us her name, but surely she is there with Jesus Christ right now. And when we get to heaven, we're gonna find out her name. We're gonna hear more of her story. And my prayer is that you and I, while we are on this earth, that we would love Jesus as she has loved Jesus. And that we would truly live out the beauty of the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word over us. We thank you for your grace that is given to us so freely and completely in Jesus Christ. We thank you, O oh God, for loving us first. For because of that love, we are now able and free to love you back. Help us to do so. Help us to adore you, O oh Lord. Help us to to really see how how precious and beautiful you are. Forgive us if we have forgotten this. Forgive us if we have taken your forgiveness and, and love and grace for granted. God, would you renew in us a joy, a conviction, a gladness in the fact that we are forgiven of all of our sins. And would you make us a loving and grateful people? We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.